This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, hey, question. Have you guys noticed um, a little bit of tension building in the last couple of years? Like just a little bit? Or is that just me? Like I'm feeling it. I don't know if you are. Uh, and, it's, and it feels like it's growing at like an uh, uh, exponentially alarming rate. And we feel it. We feel it individually. We feel it uh, collectively as society. And it, and it feels kind of like, it kind of feels like we're a rubber band, doesn't it? Like a rubber band, it, it stretches into a state of tension, but then it releases that tension, doesn't it? Or at least it's meant to. Or, or we feel like a spring that is compressed into a state of tension and, and then expands and breathes and releases the tension. Or at least that's the way it's designed to. The thing is, is like we can only take so much tension and only for so long until eventually we, we stretch to the point of snapping and it's going to fling back and pop your eyeball out. Or we, we get compressed to the point that we explode, or, or worse, where that spring that has compressed to the point, it no longer releases, it just gives up. We've been living in this prolonged state of tension, stretched further and longer than we meant to, compressed more than we're, we were intended to. And that prolonged state of tension, it leads to, a, to, to, to less asking and more assuming, doesn't it? It leads to less listening and more accusing, less unity, more division, less peace, and more conflict. And we feel it. Even if you can't put words to it, you, you feel it. We feel it in society. We feel it in our relationships, even especially relationships that two, three years ago were great. Now there's just nothing but tension. We feel, it, we feel it in our bodies. You feel the physical tension, like it is exhausting physically. The headaches, the, man, I ground my teeth before. I'm like wearing them down to nubs right now if it weren't for my mouth guard. I'm a 44-year-old man that wears a retainer and a mouth guard. But how do we navigate this tension as followers of Jesus other than all running to the dentist and getting mouth guards? How do, we, how do we keep from snapping? How do we keep from exploding? How do we keep from just throwing the white flag and giving up? And we're not the first to ask those questions. James, the half-brother Jesus, he wrote to people who were also living in a, in a prolonged state of tension. See, after they had left their Jewish way of life behind to begin following Jesus, um, this crazy thing happened. Life didn't get easier. It actually got harder. And they were suffering. They were suffering relationally. They had been shunned by their Jewish friends and family. They were suffering financially. They were losing their jobs. And they were on the verge of snapping. They were on the verge of exploding. And so this morning, as we continue in our series looking at the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to look at the fruit of gentleness this morning in this passage that Ethan read on wisdom here in James 3. And so go ahead and open your Bibles to James 3 if you haven't already. That's going to be near the very end of your Bible, right before Revelation. And what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see this fruit of gentleness that is cultivated in us by God, born out of wisdom from God, been found in God. As James, what he does is he's going to contrast two very different types of wisdom that lead to two very different outcomes. One that creates tension and one that releases that tension. And he begins here in verse 13 asking a rhetorical question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? 
Now, it's not a trick question, right? Um, where, you know, there was always that kid at school that sat in the front row, and uh, he was like, ooh, 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 call on me, call on me. And like, that was true in kindergarten. That was true in seminary. There's always that kid who wants to sit right in the front row. He'd be, he'd be sitting right there in that chair and that chair. Not where Janice is sitting. That's too far over. Right here, raising her hand for every question. Now, mind you, just sidebar, when I ask questions in my sermons, I love it when you guys answer. That's okay. That's okay. Um, what month is it? July. Um, why are we here? Who are we here to worship? That's really good. What question number in the catechism are we in this coming week? Real good, good. See, that's what we're doing. It's okay to ask questions. But you don't need to go, ooh, ooh, ooh call on me, Pastor. Ask. Just answer the question. But that's not what he's doing here. Now, instead, he, uh, he's not asking for a show of hands. He's not naming who's wise among them. No, he goes on to describe who's wise among them. And he says, he goes on to say in verse 13, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, in the gentleness of wisdom. And he answers his own question here, doesn't he? Describing who is wise. And he describes them by saying that wisdom is two things. Wisdom is shown in your conduct, in what you do, and it is seen in your character, in how you do what you do. And so let's look at both of those, right? First, wisdom, it is shown in your conduct. It's displayed through your works, he said, through what you do. It is made visible. And that's because wisdom isn't something we claim, it's something we display, something we demonstrate. Wisdom, it's not simply acquiring knowledge, it is applying knowledge. And that means it's not intellectual or theological based on how much you know, but behavioral, right? Based on what you do with what you know. Wisdom is, is lived out. Wisdom is displayed. It is revealed through what we say, through what we do. Because what we know to be true is that our behaviors reveal our beliefs, don't they? Our behaviors reveal our beliefs. Not simply our professed beliefs, not those things that we claim to believe, but those, those deeply held beliefs that form our inner being, that are a part of, of who we are. Right? Wisdom is shown in our conduct. But also wisdom is seen in our character. It's seen in how we do what we do. And the wisdom James is calling us as God's people to demonstrate even in this, this state of tension, it's done out of meekness. And meekness there in the Greek, it's the same word that Paul used in Galatians 5 for the fruit of the Spirit to describe the fruit of gentleness. And to the point that the, uh, the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, it translates this verse, let us show that our works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Or my favorite is Dr. Scott McKnight's translation. He says, with gentleness born out of wisdom. But much like our culture, uh, meekness, if we rewind 2,000 years to the first century Greco-Roman culture, they, they viewed meekness as weakness, right? They viewed uh, gentleness as, as cowardice, right? but not Jesus, right? Jesus, remember, in the, in the Beatitudes, he, he commended it. He blessed it. He, he said in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Not the strong, not the arrogant, not the proud, but the meek and the gentle. And this wisdom, it gives birth to gentleness, this visible fruit that the Spirit is forming within us, fruit that looks nothing like the, the wisdom of the world because it gives birth to a character trait not valued by the world. 
Right? Wisdom, it is shown in our conduct and what we do and seen in our character, how we do what we do. And that's true of both of these types of wisdom that, that James is going to go on to contrast, different wisdoms that lead to different destinations. And he shares four attributes of each here that we're going to look at for each. He's going to share where this wisdom comes from, its source, what it looks like, its attributes, how you can identify it, what it seeks, right, its desires, its motivations. And number four, it's going to show us what it does, what it produces, what the outcome is that it leads to. And the first that he's going to show us is earthly wisdom. And in, in earthly wisdom here, what he's going to show us is that it does two things. It pursues your own good, right? It is all about me, and it creates conflict. It creates tension. It creates anxiety, right? Earthly wisdom pursues your own good and creates conflict. Look here with me at what James says here in verse 14 to 16. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He describes the, the source of wisdom here uh, with, with two pair of descriptions in verse 15, doesn't he? The first is that it's not from above, it's not from God, but it is, it is earthly. It's not wisdom that comes from God, but it's wisdom that, that is formed in the world. And the second description is that it, it, it's not spiritual, meaning from the Spirit, but demonic. It, it's not wisdom guided by the Holy Spirit. It's wisdom guided by demons. And we're like, huh, is that really true? James said so. And I think what we experienced in that, huh, was a little bit of the Enlightenment carrying on. The, the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, it sought to eliminate the supernatural in exchange for the rational. Those things that cannot be explained must have been made up. Only those things that we could reason with logic were to be held as true. And so people in their Bibles even would strike out miracles, those things that could not be explained as just stories. There's a line from this movie, The Usual Suspects, that I love. It says, um, it says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So, man, we know that to be untrue, don't we? We know he exists. He very much exists. He's very much real. He, he is a deceiver at work. He is a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to vow or someone to simply deceive. And so you might be thinking, okay, if we're looking for godly spiritual things, not earthly demonic things, does that mean then that as Christians, we should only eat Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches? Because, you know, they're closed on Sunday. They are clearly then spiritual and from above. Should we then avoid the Popeye spicy chicken sandwich and claim that it is earthly and demonic? Oh, I sure hope not. I love me a Popeye spicy chicken sandwich. There's nothing against Chick-fil-A, but it just, it's like Major League Baseball and double-A baseball. Let's clarify something here. Remember, he, wisdom, it's not about information. It is about application of the information. It is about how we use it, what we do with it. And that means that he's not condemning here information that doesn't come directly from God or from his word. There's plenty of things in the secular world that, um, that, are, that, they've, that has been created that we as Christians, that we are free to use, free to enjoy, that we do every day. Things like mathematics and spreadsheets. Amen? Well, at least you know I do. 
Things like art and architecture, things like technology and medication, tools that, that help us better understand ourselves and society and how it is that we function, even those that might be critical of how society functions. Right? Most things, when we look at them, they're, they're not inherently good or evil themselves, godly or earthly, spiritual or demonic. And that's because our, our world isn't as black and white as we like to think it to be. And that means it requires wisdom to navigate that sea of gray that we live in, doesn't it? To, to navigate the nuance. And so here's an example. Take, take penicillin, for example. Show of hands, a real show of hands. Who all here is like, yeah, penicillin's a good thing? It's not a trick question. If you've ever had an infection, you've taken penicillin, this antibiotic, to treat it, likely. I think we'd all agree, even those of you who didn't raise your hand, that it's a pretty incredible medical discovery. But here's, here's a question for you. Uh, does the source of penicillin, who discovered it, does that matter to you? Does that matter based on whether or not you raised your hand, who it is that discovered it? Do you care if it was discovered by a Christian scientist in a Christian research facility? Do you, like, for example, what if, what if penicillin was discovered by someone who is a Muslim? Does that change your view? What if it was created by someone who's a Hindu? What if it was discovered by someone who is an atheist? What if it was discovered by a Satan worshiper? Does that change if you take or don't take penicillin? I hope not. That said... Scottish physician Alexander Fleming, who, who discovered penicillin, was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1945. Uh, he was believed to have lived essentially an entirely secular life apart from the church. And, and so if, if, if penicillin is still okay to, to take, given that it was created by non-Christians in a non-Christian research facility, wouldn't the same also be true of, of psychological and sociological theories developed outside the church by non-Christians, wouldn't those things then agree, wouldn't you agree they would not inherently be evil, but instead require wisdom to navigate? You see, one of the many ways that I think Satan deceives is by taking neutral things, things that are inherently neutral, that may very well be used for evil, but are themselves inherently neutral, and convincing us that that thing is inherently evil. And rather than wisely contemplating their use individually and within society, banning their use entirely. We see this like uh, music and dance, right? If you watch the movie Footloose, right? All music, dance, bad. Uh, or uh, alcohol, bad. Uh, can be used bad, but it can also be used okay. Games, bad. My mom, she grew up in a, in a house and in a church that um, banned the use of playing cards. So what they did instead, what was okay, was they could use this deck called Rook cards. Here's the part I never understood. Do you know how many cards are in a Rook deck? 52. <laughs> Divided into four groups of 13. I don't quite get how they're different. Playing cards, bad. Rook cards, okay. We do this with books and television, and, and, and effectively what we're banning is culture at that point. And here's the thing, that's not wisdom, that's fundamentalism. That's not navigating the shades of gray, that's just making everything black, everything white. Wisdom is about how we use 
what we have. But he also deceives by convincing us that inherently good things, like even the words of Scripture. He'll convince us that those can never be used for evil. And yet, what I think many of us in this room know and have experienced personally is passages of Scripture taken out of context and twisted and weaponized to humiliate and to harm and to hurt others or to control and conceal things from others. And and hear me, that is not from above. That is not spiritual. That is 100% demonic, isn't it? I give those two examples because I want you to see James. He's not concerned here with the source of the information of where it comes from, but of our application of the information, of how it is that we use this, applying it in a way that is from above, that is from God, not from Satan, using it in a way guided by the spirit, not by the demonic. Okay, we got the source down, so then what does it look like? What does this earthly demonic wisdom look like? How can we identify it? I'm glad you asked. He gives us four descriptions here in verse 14. And the first is that it reveals itself in bitter jealousy. I think we'd all agree bitter jealousy is probably not from above, is it? No. It's coveting what someone else has. It's one of those, God gave a list of 10 rules early on, and it's one of those 10, which probably means it's pretty important. But bitter jealousy, it often leads to a couple of things. It it can lead to comparing ourselves to others. And when we do, believing that we're never good enough. We'll never be enough. We'll never do enough. We'll never have enough. And it, and it increases the anxiety, increases the tension as we're always in pursuit of more, comparing ourselves to others or, or criticizing others, believing we are better than them. They're doing it wrong. And it can even lead to resenting their success and celebrating their failures. And all that does is increase the tension. It reveals itself, number two, in selfish ambition in worshiping at that altar of your family, of your career, of your bank account. Whatever that thing is that you turn to and trust in, in the midst of the anxiety and the tension. Sacrificing whomever or or whatever it takes to get more of that. Number three, it reveals itself, he says here, in boasting. In not just in what you do, but ensuring everyone knows what you do. It's not enough to be successful. It's ensuring everyone else knows you're successful. And what James is going to go on to say in chapter 4 is that your boasting, it is done out of arrogance. And all such boasting, with no asterisk, no footnotes, is evil. It is not from above. And then number four, it reveals itself in claiming false truths, in creating your own version of the truth, in calling good evil and evil good, in circulating conspiracy theories, instead of celebrating the truth as defined by God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, the sum of your word, the entirety of Scripture is truth. Not proof text and not taking a verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including bench pressing 450 pounds. But the entirety of Scripture Augustine, he writes, where I found truth, there found I, my God, who is the truth itself. But earthly wisdom is revealed when we claim things that are contrary to God's word to be true, things contrary to the way God has called us to live, to be acceptable. 
And what that does is it, it leads to turning inward rather than outward and, and upward, right? Seeking our own good and, and obtaining it by any means necessary, becoming more concerned with our rights than our righteousness. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 8? He says that when, when exercising our rights, when that becomes a stumbling block for others, we're to lay down our rights for the good of others. We're to voluntarily lay down our rights for the good of others and remove that stumbling block for them, out of love for them. But when we don't, what all of this earthly wisdom leads to, the resulting chaos and disorder he describes here that ensues from turning further inward, pursuing every vile, every sinful and selfish practice, and doing whatever it takes to get what you want, it only further divides and destroys, doesn't it? It divides churches and it destroys relationships. And uh, I used to think, um, I love post-apocalyptic movies, and I don't know why. I love, like, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I love all the Mad Maxes. Um, that one, though, like, had the worst rating, and I think it's still my favorite. Uh, or The Road, if you want to go really dark. Or Book of Eli. Like, I love them all, that whole subgenre of apocalyptic movies. And I used to think that, like, I used to think those movies, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It's a bit of a stretch. Like, come on, there's no way humanity is going to devolve that far, that fast. I don't think that anymore after the last couple of years. I think that might be somewhat prophetic. Social media, for example, it's turned, on into, turned into an online gladiatorial arena where we are doing full-on combat with each other, right? It is the new Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. And this selfish, vile behavior, like it couldn't be any further from the way of Jesus, the way that he's called us to live, a way Paul describes here in Philippians 2 where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing. Again, no asterisk, no footnote. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is what it means to have the mind of Christ. That is what it means to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. That is what displaying the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of gentleness formed by the Spirit, born out of wisdom, wisdom from above looks like. And that's what he goes on to show us in these last two verses, is what this godly wisdom from above looks like. And what we're going to see here is how different it looks from earthly wisdom, because godly wisdom, it pursues the good of others rather than our own good, and it produces peace rather than creating conflict. It seeks to release the tension, not prolong it. And so he says here in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Like this, is, this is what the wisdom from above that comes from God looks like because he himself is the source of true wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom. It, it comes from him. It says, from his mouth come not just knowledge and information, but, but understanding and, and discernment. It, our, our, our intuition, our senses, our emotions, they are constantly gathering data. And they make knee-jerk reactions to that data. But when we step back for a hot second and cool our jets for a bit, our, our intellect begins processing that data. And it does that with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we're using wisdom from above. Think of the Holy Spirit as like the CPU inside you. He's the processor. He's the intel. 
And because it comes from a very different source, it looks very different. It looks visibly different, bearing visible fruit of the Spirit. And he gives us seven attributes here in verse 17. The first is that wisdom from above, it is, it is pure. It's not tainted. It's not polluted. It's free of evil. It's free of division because of where it originates. Because it originates from God, the one who himself is holy and righteous, perfect and blameless. But number two, it's, it's peaceable, isn't it? It desires peace. It pursues peace. Jesus, he, he also said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, those who desire and pursue peace. But here's the thing, earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom, uh, it's going to define the presence of peace as the absence of conflict, isn't it? And that means it pursues peace very differently. It pursues it by pretending that conflict doesn't exist, like there's nothing to see here. This is not the conflict you're looking for. There's no Star Wars fans in the room today, at least not verbal ones. It pursues peace by pretending it doesn't exist. It pursues peace by, by preventing it from occurring, even threatening conflict to prevent conflict. And all that does is it prolongs the tension. It increases the level of anxiety, and it creates conflict and chaos. But godly wisdom, wisdom from above, it defines the presence of peace not by the absence of something, but by the presence of something, the presence of shalom. This sense of well-being, this sense of wholeness and completeness between individuals and within all of creation, and, and seeking shalom, it's this pursuit of how things were meant to be, how they were meant to function, how they were in the very good beginning back in the garden, as creation, all of creation dwelt in the presence of its creator. And that peace that we find in God's presence, it releases tension. It reduces anxiety. It calms the chaos. The third description he gives here is that it is gentle. It's kind. It's considered. It's empathetic in character. It, and it is revealed in how we do what we do. You do things gently. You don't do gentle. You do them gently. It's desiring, as Dr. Scott McKnight says, to create peace in the community in a non-combative manner. It's not just pursuing peace, but it is the way in which we pursue peace. And the fruit of the Spirit, it forms our posture and the way that we interact with others, toward others, all others. Paul, for example, he calls elders in, in 1 Timothy 3 to not be violent, but to be gentle with those entrusted to our care. He calls all followers in Titus 3 that we saw a couple weeks ago to avoid quarreling, but to be gentle, showing perfect courtesy to all people. And not just to those that we think deserving, but what he said in Galatians 6 was that we are to restore those who have fallen away and returned and repented, and to do that in a spirit of gentleness, not harshness. Number four, he says we're to be open to reason. It's one we'd probably like to just skip back, get past. Because I think godly wisdom from above, although God is always right. Real, we good with that? Okay. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. God is always right. Uh, but godly wisdom from above in, in us, um, it's not about always being right. It's about accepting the possibility of maybe quite possibly sort of being wrong. And we want to add as many asterisks to that one as we can. It's about deferring to the wisdom of others when you're unsure. And can we be honest, like, that's scary, isn't it? It's scary because it requires 
living in the open with others and allowing them to see behind the curtain. And we got a lot of stuff behind that curtain, don't we? It's scary, but it's also humbling because it requires seeking their counsel and listening to their critique. It requires lowering your defenses and trusting one another, opening your your ears to hear and your heart to be known and to be loved by others. But that honesty with others, it requires vulnerability with others, doesn't it? But hear me, it is the only way to intimacy with others. Honesty requires vulnerability and leads to intimacy. Scott Sauls, in his recent book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, he writes, intimacy cannot happen without honesty. He says, the absence of honesty cuts off our ability to be known. Instead of our actual selves being known, we're portraying a false self, a character, and that is what is known. Number five, he says, it is full of mercy and good fruits. It's, it's listening to others and learning from them, those that are different from you, entering into their story and, and learning the why behind the what, what they believe, what they have experienced, and not jumping to conclusions and judging them based on what limited data you have. And we're really good at that, aren't we? We're really good at judging and jumping to conclusions. We're not so good at being full of mercy and good fruits. Good fruits like strawberries, raspberries, blueberries. I'm distracted by berries right now. Man, with like some homemade whipped cream on top, not like that cool whip stuff, but like real whipped cream. All God's people said amen. If you've never had it, your life will be changed. Not as much as Jesus changes your life, but home, <laughs> homemade whipped cream is going to change your life still. That's some good fruit right there. Number six, it's about being impartial. I was very partial to homemade whipped cream versus Cool Whip, okay? But James, he wrote extensively on partiality in the opening two chapters of his letter because what was happening was uh, they were suffering so much that, that some in this church, what they were doing when, when a wealthy person walked in, they were like, the entire welcome team went to them. They, somebody went over and actually poured them their own coffee. They may have even pressed a, an individual cup of coffee for them. And they brought them up front, and they're like, Pastor, you ain't sitting there today. They're sitting right here. Also, they're like, can we agree the front row is probably not the seat of honor? I don't know. Where's the, the seat of honor is like the second, third row here and the second, third row there. That's like the, the hot spots. And uh, so we probably give it to them on the aisle, of course. No one puts people in the middle. But that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing to the wealthy. That's what they were doing to those that they thought they could gain something from. But to the, the other people, the poor people, which, again, they were poor themselves. So it was like to the others like them, they ignored, they dishonored them, they pushed them to the side. And what that means is, is, is partiality. It leads to pursuing your own good and asking what good others can do for you, Right? Consumerism, 2,000 years ago, just like today, even in the church. But impartiality, it leads to pursuing the good of others and asking what good you can do for them. That's wisdom from above. And number seven is it is sincere. It is authentic. It means what it says, not just appearing to love, but genuinely loving. Not like the Pharisees who Jesus called them out for doing all their deeds just to be seen by others. They didn't have Instagram, so they had to do it real time to be seen. 
but serving out of a sincere desire to love others, to love all others, even if, bear with me, there's no picture to prove that you are loving. It is sincere because godly wisdom, it pursues the good of others and it produces peace. And he ends in verse 18 saying, here's the result, here's what it leads to. It leads to and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? Wisdom from above, it, it sows peace, it seeks shalom, and it's done by those who make, those who promote peace. Meaning we don't just stumble upon it, this is intentional, this is active, this is something we need to be doing in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our world. We need to be pursuers of peace, cultivating peace by, by creating an environment where spiritual growth can flourish, where more people can know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, creating an environment of, of safety, right? one where hurting people can begin to heal. And I think we got a lot of people hurting, don't we? And unfortunately, far too many hurting because of the church. And so we want to create an environment where hurting people can begin to heal and restore their relationship with God to take that next step and the next step we want to create an environment of safety, but also we want to create an environment of vulnerability, one that invites honesty, but that requires an environment of safety, one that invites honesty that leads to intimacy both with Christ and his bride, his body, with the church. Creating an environment where, where strangers are united together as family in Christ where we come together, where we care for each other, planting seed, watering seed in each other's lives and praying that God would give the growth and then celebrating this harvest of righteousness, the fruit that the Spirit is forming within us as our lives are transformed by the gospel and the love of Jesus. Sounds good, doesn't it? So let's go back to the beginning. How do we as followers of Jesus navigate this prolonged tension that we find ourselves in? What is it that's going to keep us from, from snapping like a stretched rubber band? What is it that's going to keep us from exploding like a compressed spring? Or even worse, just giving up and walking away from it all. I don't have a list of five things for you. I got one. And his name is Jesus. We, we, we find this by turning to God in the midst of the tension. When things are hard, not easy. We find this by resting in his presence when we are exhausted, by listening to his voice when the world is feeding us lies, by abiding in his love when we feel attacked at every side, by trusting in his spirit to guide us in his wisdom when we don't know where to turn. And this peace that we long for, this shalom that I think we are all seeking, even everyone out there, not just those of us in here, the entire world desires this. That shalom we are seeking with God, that peace we're seeking with each other, it can only be found in Jesus and only be found because of Jesus. Amen? Jesus, the, the incarnate word, God who came to us as one of us, This manifestation of wisdom from above through whom Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God made foolish the wisdom of the world. It was God's wisdom from above revealed to the world. The one who is pure without sin, the one who 
where it lives in, in perfect peace with God the Father and God the Spirit, who is himself gentle and lowly in heart, who is full of mercy, overflowing with mercy towards us and grace for us, and who is impartial and sincere in his love for us, for everyone, for the world, love that was displayed on the cross, love that led him to die so that we might live in him and through him, with him and by him, and responding by sharing that love with the world, love that is gentle, gentle with others, with all others, a fruit born out of wisdom from above, formed by the Spirit within, wisdom guided by the Spirit in pursuit of peace, seeking shalom, peace that calms anxiety and releases tension. How do we navigate the tension? By continuing to turn to and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.